friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we'll be addressing several things this week. We're going to be talking to an old friend of the show's who's been so kind to us. He is Dr. Timothy Flanagan, an infectious disease expert at Brown University, and he is going to talk to us again this time about the vaccines, which are eminent. Also, we are going to talk to Carrie Gress. She is the author of Theology of the Home, which has now its uh, second edition, Theology of the Home 2, The Spiritual Art of Homemaking. It's really a lovely book, and Carrie brings an amazing sensibility to the uh, the reality of homemaking, what it is to be a homemaker. But first, I've asked Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I've asked her to come on and talk to us about some exciting news out of the UK this week. A high court decided that hormone therapy and hormone blockers should not be given to children or teens because of their inability to appropriately consent to this. So this is a very big deal. We are experiencing a lot of things here in our country as to our children who are learning about transgender ideology in school and sometimes being led down that path. So this is really important for all of us. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Mary. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, We reached out to you at the very last minute because something just happened across the pond in the UK and we wanted your your input on it because uh, we think that it's very important and it has a a big um, it's going to have a big impact on things here why don't I let you explain it Sure, actually, and and I think you're exactly right. This case is tremendously important. It is a case that was brought by a a young woman who was treated for gender dysphoria when she was 15 by the gender clinic in that is part of the National Health Service over in the UK. And by the she went through puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, had a double mastectomy, and then by the time she was in her early 20s, she realized this had all been a mistake. And so she brought this not as as a malpractice suit, as we might tend to think of here, but rather as a a petition to the court, because again, socialized medicine, the state can intervene and kind of look at what's happening, a petition to the court to review whether a child can really give consent to these sorts of medical interventions that have such lifelong consequences and almost no research base that is supportive of it. There's There actually is some long-term research based on adults that show serious concerns to undergoing any of these procedures, but there's almost nothing pertaining to children. Uh, So it makes that that whole idea of affirming a child's gender identity, quote, and then putting them through these medical procedures with tremendous losses, uh, it, it makes that even more momentous and more important that there really be informed consent. So, uh, so the court looked at this and said, um, took evidence about what happens with the puberty blockers, what happens to kids who get puberty blockers. And one very important fact that came out in the course of the evidence that was presented and then the, the court dwelt on it in its opinion was that when children begin taking puberty blockers, they're having this confusion about who they 
they are. The narrative has been, well, we'll just give you this medicine, these puberty blockers, so that just sort of freezes you there. Your your body doesn't continue to progress and you can figure it out. You can figure out whether you want to go on and then eventually take cross-sex hormones and have surgeries. What this court did in looking at all the evidence, it made a very important statement. It said, looking at this, it is clear that almost every child who begins puberty blockers, let's say at the age of 13 or 14, is going to go on to these cross-sex hormones, which means they're going to lose their fertility. One of the big questions was, can a child who is 13 or even younger really make a decision about taking these puberty blockers, which will then push the dominoes and then trigger the cross-sex hormones and take you down a path that is going to result in losing your fertility, sexual function, just, you know, these, these tremendous consequences in terms of your physical body. And the court said no, which I think, you know, you're, you're a mom. I think <laughs> those of us just from a common sense basis, you know, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, they, they can't look ahead at the decision they're making today about, oh, I want to relieve my pain and my anxiety and see those consequences. And they can't possibly understand the significance, for example, of losing your fertility. So that was a major factor here of this decision that the court for the first time really entertained evidence and came out strongly saying, confirming that what happens here when a child starts on this conveyor belt, this transgender transition process, it's it's a one-way street. You know, There's what, no I, alternative. what impressed me when I was reading about the case is that, and this is true here in the United States, is that when a child presents to one of these clinics or to the endocrinologist with feelings of gender dysphoria, he's, that mm-hmm. child is not given a range of options for how to mm-hmm. proceed. So we know that about 80% of children who have gender dysphoria are able to grow out of it with appropriate supportive uh, therapies like talk therapies and antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And yet, the in the vast majority of cases, and something like 100% of the time in this clinic in the UK, mm-hmm. the child mm-hmm. is immediately put down the road of the of transgender, which is, you know, life, <laughs> life wrecking in many ways. Um, right. And so I was amazed that that people aren't being given the chance at a therapy that could cure them and will mm-hmm. not wreck them physically, which brings mm-hmm. me which brings me to an important case that just also came out of Florida, but here in the United States. If you could explain that to yes. us, Mary. Yes. So it. Um, the common thread here between this case over in the UK and the case you're referring to in the 11th Circuit is the need for children to have alternatives and for families to have alternatives when they're they're experiencing this kind of identity confusion. So the 11th Circuit ruled and said that a um, conversion therapy ban was unconstitutional it was it restricted the therapist's free speech and you know could not pass constitutional muster and why that's important is this these quote conversion therapy bans relate to not just sexual orientation but gender identity and so what they say to families is if your child is experiencing confusion the only kind of therapist you can go to is one who is going to practice affirmative therapy in other words they won't ask questions why did you start feeling this way what else might be behind it. All they're allowed to do is 
affirm that child's new gender identity. And anything else would be considered conversion therapy. And so the court very wisely said, you know, that's that's restricting free speech, certainly for the therapist, but you could argue too for the client as well, because they can't explore those those underlying reasons. So, you know, back to the, the UK, it's, it's the same idea, recognizing that kids can be very confused. But when the medical system puts all its weight behind one option that pushes them down the road towards serious life-altering physical consequences. In other words, they're going to be at war with their body for the rest of their lives. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, and, and they're forcing them to make that decision when they're way too immature and there isn't even the research, even if you thought this was a good idea, but there, there's not even the research that shows what those consequences are going to be. So you're really, it's like having your eyes closed and you're feeling around the dark and trying to make a decision. And so the court very wisely said, can't be done, can't be done. So the clinic over there now has has already put up its new protocols. They are, are not allowed to continue to prescribe puberty blockers to children who are 13 or under, children who are 14 and 15. They have, There's a process they have to go through and possibly they can petition the court. Same thing for children who are 16 and, and over. But it, this is a game changer because it acknowledged that there need to be more pathways. This is like the dominoes falling. Once you start on this path, you are making decisions that are going to irrevocably change the rest of your life and there's no research there's nothing that shows this is a good idea so you're also you're also pretty much locking yourself or your child into the reality of a suicide attempt rate of 40 percent well and that's an important thing because one of the points that came up is that that um, people who push for this gender affirmation argue that if children do not get this when they're experiencing this confusion then they will commit suicide and what the court pointed out was you know, there's there was no evidence the kids who were on the waiting list were committing suicide all the time. There were very few. So it was a rare note of uh, sanity in the midst of, of all of this confusion about transgender identities. And, and we'll see what the impact will be over here. Again, there's this this case in the UK is not dispositive for, uh, for law here. But what it does is it changes the conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Mary. It's, it is great news from the UK and also from the United States. Thank you you for explaining all of that to us. You do it so well, and uh, you illuminate us, so thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for uh, caring about this issue. And now we turn to Dr. Timothy Flanagan. He's a deacon and also an infectious disease expert at Brown University. He's helped us so much to make sense of this past year of COVID craziness. Welcome to the show, Dr. Flanagan. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be on the show. Thank you again for being so, so good to the show and coming on so many times since COVID started, which I think we're coming on to a year, right? Because we started hearing, we started hearing sort of whispers of it back around this time last year. Exactly right. And the first cases were being reported out of China and the virus was identified very, very quickly. But we didn't understand how easy it was to spread, and we didn't really anticipate how bad it would be, and we've had to play catch-up a little bit. So it's been challenging. We all understand that the the, the situation in, 
has been terrible for people who suffer from COVID, people who've been in the hospital, very sick, away from their loved ones, um, had terrible complications, even death. But another thing that's been really horrible on a global scale has been the way that our lives and routines have been, have been upended, the way we've been separated and atomized, the way children have been kept out of school, the way people have lost their jobs because their places of work were closed. Would you say um, that COVID is not just a disease, but it, it's a global tragedy involving all these different parts of our lives? I would. I think that's a very good way to put it. We need to be nurtured as people. We know that God our Father nurtures us. We know that the church helps us so much, for example, with the sacraments, but we need to be nurtured by each other. That's why the family is the most important way for us to love and be loved. Suddenly we have a pandemic, which is pulling us apart. So children don't want to visit their parents because what if they give them COVID and they die? They worry, Mm. gosh, I could have killed them. And we don't want to visit a good friend who's older or a neighbor, an aunt. And so it's pulling us apart. And yet we need each other. We don't do well when we're just in our own heads. We can't just talk to ourselves. We need to see each other. We need to see each other smile. We need to see each other laugh with us and sometimes laugh at us. (laughs) And that's what keeps as human. And so this is really difficult for us. And we know that mental health challenges or the anxiety, the depression in our country is very great. You know, we're a country which is wealthier than any other country in the world. It's really unprecedented wealth, which is quite extraordinary. And yet at the same time, we as a people are often the walking wounded. We have great pain and great wounds, and we need to nurture and help each other through it. And COVID is suddenly making that very difficult. I have to share that I have now personally known three young people who've tried to commit suicide since March. One of them I visited in the ICU two days ago. She tried, she drank a whole bottle of Tylenol. She's damaged her liver terribly. She may even end up with liver failure, which is such a tragedy. And to me, these, these three young people I know are emblematic of this uh, tragedy that we're all experiencing. Tragedy that doesn't seem to end. No, no, you're right. I mean, our American culture tries to give meaning through consumption. You know, gosh, mm-hmm, you true. can buy something great and that's going to make you feel happy. You're going to look great on social media. That's going to make you happy. And yet we know that that doesn't feed our heart or our soul, that we are created to love and be loved to give of ourselves. And yet suddenly we have trouble doing that. And so we we really do have a, a gaping wound. They say in AA that all of us have a God-sized hole in our heart which can only be filled by God. Oh, I feel like St. Augustine said that first. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. AA just adapted it. (laughs) Well, they did it very well. It's a very good way to say it. What did you think when the Supreme Court said that that people ought to be able to go to church and to temple at the same rate and with the same ease that they go to Target or to the acupuncturist? I was so thrilled and I was so delighted because... This is a battle, and we as Christians and people of other faiths have to speak up. Because at the end of the day, we believe that our faith is essential and just as essential as going to the grocery store, going to the gas station, and certainly more essential than many luxuries that are allowed. I mean, you can go into Tiffany's and buy, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of jewelry. None of us would consider that essential. That's a luxury, but that's allowed. Whereas at the same time, going into a 
church or a synagogue is banned in many jurisdictions. Now, not most. I think most of our governors, most of our mayors understand that our spiritual and our religious worship is so important to our well-being. But, you know, we do live in a very secular country, and there are many elected officials that really are, if they're not outright hostile, they're certainly not sympathetic to churchgoers. And so they don't hesitate to put significant restrictions. Now, some people would say, yes, but there have been outbreaks that have occurred during worship, during church, during choir practice. And the answer is correct. There are. So we have seen outbreaks at church camps, at church dinners and lunches, at choir practices. Yes, it is possible. And so that's why very important common sense restrictions have been put in place so that when you're in church, we strongly recommend wearing masks, six foot distancing, washing your hands and good hand hygiene. And if anybody is feeling ill, not to go. But we do know that COVID can easily be be spread by folks that have no symptoms. In fact, we think the highest transmission occurs two days before you get sick and a day or two after. So that's why everyone, even if they feel great, really should wear a mask, should socially distance, no shaking of the hands, no hugging, unless you're in the same household. You know, if you're if you're in that, you're already living together, that's a little different. You already if you come to church in the same car, then you know obviously you can sit together. But otherwise we want to socially distance, we want to wear the masks and And we really like our good hand hygiene, and it does make a huge difference. So we believe that is safe, just as safe as other essential activities. You speculate that it's because our society is becoming secular that that some governors and some state governments have not been understanding of people's essential need for essential uh, worship. But um, even without understanding the religious mindset, there's a lot of scientific proof that people who are engaged in worship with a community— live longer, live healthier lives, have healthier family lives. They are less uh, prone to addiction, suicide, and all sorts of other dysfunctions. Is that true, uh, Dr. Flanagan? It's 100% true. There's a lot of research going on now to see how can we improve resiliency or mm-hmm. grit. That's and a great word. Know, <laughs> isn't it great? You know, and grit is, is that's the common... And yet we know it's so important because there's no way to take suffering out of life. Paradoxically, as a parent, we try and protect our kids from pain. And unfortunately, that's not always a good thing to do that. I mean, it's understandable. I wish that we talked about pain more frequently in our family over the dinner table, over breakfast, um, just driving our kids to school saying, you know, I'm really sad. I'm really hurting because of X, Y, and Z, because that's reality. Mm -hmm. But we try, you know, we try to make everybody happy. But, you know, our, our, our goal is not contentment. Our goal is really holiness. And so we unfortunately try and protect our kids, but that means we don't build that resilience and that grit, which is critically important. But as you say, there's very, very good objective data that folks that it's interesting, it's folks that practice their faith regularly, which is defined as going to a worship service once a week. So folks that do that. That's very specific. Very specific. Well, they're trying to get away. It's not what you say you believe. Not saying I'm a spiritual person, for instance. That's right. It means you're actually practicing your faith. You're showing that it's a priority in your life because you're taking the time to do that. Yeah, and it's exactly the kind of support and that we need in this horrible time of COVID <laughs> with everything else that's going wrong. <laughs> it really is uh, really super important, really important. 
a lot of people are pinning their hopes on the coming vaccines. And to me, it's very interesting because I keep getting calls and people keep, um, as a doctor, I'm as a physician, they say, are you planning to take the vaccine? What, what do you think? What do you and your husband think? He's also a physician. I bring that up because I feel that there's a lot of uncertainty out there about the safety, the efficacy, the a lot of a, a lot of mistrust, a lot of lack of uh, lack of trust in um, the powers that be that produce these vaccines. And are you feeling that same kind of uh, uncertainty and mistrust when people are considering the vaccine as it comes along? I am feeling that. I have talked to a number of my patients, and a lot of them really articulate that distrust. They really are they they are worried, and they're not sure they're going to take it. I have to, in full disclosure, say that as an infectious disease doctor, I love vaccines. That's a funny thing to say, but I really do because I've seen so many illnesses disappear and terrible illnesses disappear because of vaccines. So I've I've seen in, when I was working overseas, a patient with very bad tetanus and the tetanus vaccine is so good. I have seen folks, children that have had uh, hemophilus influenza infection and that has resulted in meningitis and deafness. And that's been virtually eliminated because of our vaccine. In general, I am very, very pro-vaccine in general. Now with COVID, we have a couple of new, this is a little different. Mm -hmm. Why is it different? First is the two new vaccines that look like they'll be approved most quickly are the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And it's anticipated the Pfizer vaccine will become approved, might be approved, probably will, I think it will be approved December 10th. And the Moderna vaccine will be considered for approval on December 17th. So in this month, we might have both of those vaccines approved. I believe the Pfizer vaccine has already been approved in England. So they'll start yes, the vaccine there very quickly. Yeah, Yesterday, yesterday I think, mm-hmm. or today. So mm-hmm. both these vaccines are what they call mRNA vaccines. And so they're messenger RNA. That means instead of injecting a protein, you're injecting a very small piece of nucleic acids or RNA, and RNA encodes protein. Now, it's different than DNA. DNA is the genetic material or the blueprint in your cell, which coordinates everything. So we're not in this vaccine doesn't inject DNA, but it does inject messenger RNA and the cells that take that up then produce the protein that creates an antibody response and that antibody response protects you from getting COVID. And the both these vaccines have been shown to be 90% or more effective, which is considered a home run, knock your socks off mm-hmm. effective. <laughs> so that's really impressive data. Now both these vaccines do cause a strong immune reaction. So I think there's a good chance that patients, when they get the vaccine, will have a sore shoulder. They might have a little bit of a headache or they might feel a little warm, a little bit of a low-grade fever, maybe achy, particularly with the second vaccine. And so they're probably going to recommend taking a regular strength Tylenol before you get the vaccine and maybe a regular strength Tylenol after you get it for that that day and maybe before going to bed. So 24 hours, you'll feel a little achy. And, and most of us have taken vaccines when we were younger that that did that and so we're somewhat familiar with it but it's going to their side effects are going to be greater we think than with the standard flu shot or the standard pneumonia shot I don't think anyone's worried about a sore shoulder. I think people are concerned about side effects that would be further out uh, in time than maybe the vaccine trials have included. There just hasn't been enough time. And side effects like autoimmune responses like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yes, that's a great thought. Both vaccination and viral illness can be associated with Guillain-Barre syndrome. So there's a risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome 
with COVID and there will be a risk of it potentially with the vaccine as we go further out. So there are some unknowns and I think uh, many people will be somewhat hesitant. We'll want to wait. Now, every two to three months that we go further along, we'll have more and more data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think they're going to start out, we think, with healthcare workers and residents of nursing homes. And then after that, they may move on to um, others such as teachers or other folks that are more likely to be exposed. So, but the average person probably won't have the opportunity to be vaccinated till sometime in February or March is my guess, maybe even April. And some people will elect to wait, say, I'm going to wait two to three months. And, you know, that is a choice that they have. So I don't think anybody wants in any way to force it. I expect the vaccine will get an emergency use authorization. That means that the FDA will say, according to all the data that we have thus far, we approve it because it's effective with minimal long-term side effects. But they, as you say, they've you know only been giving it. I mean, if they, you know if they started injecting in September, October, I mean, this is now December, so they only have three months of data, maybe four months at most. So you know, waiting another two, three months or another two, three months is certainly reasonable. I can tell you from my point of view, I will be. I'm very excited to get it, and I'll be the first one to line up if if I'm offered it. But we'll see what happens. Well, that's wonderful news, and wonderful that we can approach that from an ethical and a safety perspective um, without too much concern. And it's our time is up, if you can believe it, Dr. Flanagan. But wow. if you could give our listeners some ideas about how to approach, we just had Thanksgiving. Well, Thanksgiving was difficult for many of us. We were separated from the ones we love. Sometimes we were in the same porch, but 15 feet away with a lot of terror. How do you think we should approach this Christmas in these difficulties that we're experiencing? Well, number one is to realize that God never abandons us. And so Mm -hmm. it's easy for us to be filled with fear and anxiety, but the gospel and Jesus really spoke to us really directly. And he said, you must trust. You have to remember that every hair on your head is accounted. And I will never, ever leave you. And realize that ultimately God is God and we are not. He loves us, loves us more than we can possibly imagine. We have to fight against the fear and the anxiety. The second is that this virus doesn't just spread through the air like a cloud. (laughs) It's direct contact, direct touch. It's coughing on each other. And so therefore, these precautions, a hand sanitizer when you come in and leave, wearing a mask, um, talking to someone and and laughing and, and smiling, but not sitting right next to them and right next to their, you know, face to face. I think we actually need to be present to each other in different ways. That even means making an effort not to just stay, to reach out and have contact. And you've got to decide how to, everybody has to decide how to do that. But while at the same time being prudent, which just means follow the three W's, which is watch your distance, wear your mask, and wash your hands. Oh, well, thank you, Dr. Flanagan. You always have such wonderful advice. I don't know what I'm going to do when COVID's over, but I'll find some reason to call you. (laughs) I would love to, and I love the fact that you're on the air and reaching out. And to all your listeners, remember, it's amazing. The greater the darkness, the more the Holy Spirit and God's grace will penetrate. We're never, ever alone. Amen. That's all I can say to that. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Flanagan. Welcome back to 
Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and in this segment, we turn our eyes towards Advent. And what better way than to invite our dear friend, Carrie Gress. She holds a PhD in philosophy, and she has written extensively on the Blessed Mother. She's a mother herself of many, and recently she's written two books, each of them called Theology of the Home, and the latest installment is called is subtitled The Spiritual Art of Homemaking. It's just an absolutely beautiful book. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. Carrie, I have your new book here in my hands, and the and your older book, the first one, is also on my coffee table. In fact, your new book, I just purchased two more for my, I have a son that's getting married in January, and a daughter that's getting married in late spring, and they're fabulous books, <laughs> because <laughs> not only are they beautiful, and you can leave them on the coffee table, and everyone wants to pick it up and look through it, but they're full of wisdom, and the kind of wisdom that young people especially need, or actually anybody who's trying to have a beautiful, healthy home with a supernatural perspective and needs to make that happen. Well, thank you. That's that's quite an endorsement, Gracie. <laughs> so I appreciate that. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the goal. We, we really saw that there's this, just this gaping hole, I think, in terms of an authentic way to live our lives so that we're actually getting the things that we want. I think this is one of the problems with mass culture that right now is that it's offering these things, but it's not the, like the equation is off. You know, these things look amazing and beautiful, and yet the way that they're p- telling people to get them is broken. And we're ending up with a lot of broken people and families because of it. So we wanted to use kind of these same tactics that popular culture uses, which is, you know, beautiful images and, and photographs. But we've laughed a lot about how we're publishing the pictures that nobody's really allowed to publish. You know, we're publishing images of dads actually looking like dads and being healthy instead of, you know, being idiots that need a woman to come do everything for them. Like they're, they're portrayed in the, in the commercials that you see and big families and children and pregnant women and, you know, all of that. So it was, it's been a really fun project just in general to figure out, you know, how do we present these things in a way that's beautiful that we, we live them every day, but they're, they're compelling. I think when people see how it really looks. Yeah. You just said, you just said that uh, what our society offers us is a consumerist vision of Mm. happiness, right? Like we're going to fill our home with all the latest gadgets and, and we're we're going to, we're going to say something and our our garage lights are going to turn off. So we don't have to go up, (laughs) go out there and turn them (laughs) off for the 50th time this week. And, and that's going to fulfill us, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't fulfill us. So we have more Mm -hmm. stuff and more convenience and more leisure and more ease than uh, any human beings in the history of mankind by far. Mm -hmm. And yet we have a persistent ache inside of us that we don't fill. And so what, for women especially, what do you propose um, can fill this ache? Well, I mean, the the fundamental answer, you know, it's a timeless answer. It's of course God. But I think that we have been sold this idea that our our happiness is going to come when we are in control and when we have power. And that's really just riddled and, you know, it's rife in the culture. Um, but we don't ever talk about this idea of fruitfulness. And so that's what one of the things that we focused on in this volume of Theology of Home was this idea of fruitfulness. Because in fruitfulness, you're actually cooperating with God. So it's it, you're, you're working in tandem with God. You're working in relationship with Him. And that's absolutely fulfilling. And we see this um, example, of course, in Mary 
um, you know, when we pray the Hail Mary, we say over and over again, you know, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. So this idea is not some sort of stray idea, but it's really at the heart of the Gospels and, and Scripture in general. So we wanted to tap into that, but again, make it something that felt fresh and compelling. Our faith always is ancient, but yet, because the Holy Spirit, it can feel new and fresh, too. So that's really what we wanted to do, and, and um, we had great time. I think you can see in the pictures, just trying to find different ways to highlight that notion of fruitfulness. You know, fruitfulness is not just having children, although, of course, that's part of it, but every woman is called to be fruitful in her life. Um, we're all called to spiritual motherhood, even though the culture doesn't tell us that. So we, we wanted to highlight those things in different ways, both visually, but also in the in the prose of the book. That's very interesting what you say. If, if the modern culture is presenting to us the idea that our happiness lies in control, you're presenting to us the, the opposite idea that our happiness might lie in fruitfulness. And mm-hmm. to be fruitful is to co-create with God and mm-hmm. make something new that then has its own life and its own purposes that we cannot mm-hmm. control we can we can set it on a good path and and heap it you know all around with with all the good things of the world and f- things that will help it to grow and 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 flourish but in the end we're not in control so these are very mm-hmm. opposite ideas of what could make a person happy and and i think it makes sense though when you start looking at what are the dynamics of the issues that we, we see in people's lives today. You know, it's p- parenting that's either, you know, it's helicopter parenting or, you know, controlling and um, trying to control our children or it's a neglect. Um, those are the kind of the two extremes, whereas a woman who understands what she's doing knows that she has to lead and guide and tend, you know, like a gardener. And there's so many different analogies that I can play out in that gardening notion. And that's really what she does is the best that she can, but she's never going to see the, the end result too. I, I think that's one of my favorite concepts is really what women do is, you know, we, we usually end up dying before we see the full results of our children and grandchildren and all the efforts that we've we've made in that fruitfulness too. So, and I think that there's so many different connections also just to the spiritual realm. We, we focused a lot on religious women. We have a stunning, stunning picture of um, these nuns in California. That I, I just, saw that. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a great picture of them. So it's that same idea. They don't see that the, the ultimate fruit of their work, you know, until they get to the other side of, of eternity but they they are the ones that are are praying and interceding for us the way that a mother does in her her children's lives they're just doing it on a spiritual level and that's i think part one of the pieces why we're so unhappy because we have forgotten that part of the feminine capacity that we have and we have compared ourselves way too much to men and we've just really we're not really sure how to find ourselves and um, i think that this is the the antidote to that in terms of helping people be happy and, and understand how to live a fulfilling life one of the things you wrote in your book which which spoke to me is the idea of living in the presence of God with a strong sense of the presence of God. And I was thinking of how important that is and how important it is to create a home where the presence of God is felt. Because mm-hmm. if we have the presence of God, that, that, that sensibility of God being there, watching us, participating with us, sharing with us, sharing our joys and our sorrows, it elevates everything in the home. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it directs us towards the right things. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think this is one of the reasons also why uh, the visual is so important, um, both in these books, but also in terms of our homes and how we're decorating them and, and remembering, being mindful of God's presence and those visuals. You know, they're not just important for us as parents or, or as women, but also for children or for guests to see that, that witness and form that relationship them, themselves. So, you know, we're ca- called in a certain way to to 
be this bridge to help get people in our lives to heaven. Um, and one of the ways that we do that is def- definitely through the material. And I think there's a, sort of a sense that we, we want to recoil a little bit from the material and say, oh, well, you know, that's not significant or important. And yet when we experience it in rich ways in our in our culture, it, it does, it makes all the difference. So, yeah, I think that that's a vital thing that, that certainly as Catholics, we need to start looking more carefully at how we, we present our concepts in, in the culture, both in books, but also in the artwork in our homes and, uh, you know, all the different ways that secular culture kind of runs circles around us doing these kinds of things. I think we've we've allowed them to do that and haven't offered an alternative voice or, or rendering of what the world can can and should be. Did you write this book, Carrie, also because women um, women have found themselves neglecting the, the home? They've been told that, that the way to be happy and fulfilled is, is mm-hmm. to specifically not pay attention at home. <laughs> to, mm-hmm. right. to not obsess yeah. over the things that our mother's obsessed about. Yeah, I think there's some element element of that but I think the more the stronger point for us was really just the recognition that the word homemaker is in such disfavor um, which speaks to your point but at the same time all the things that make a home are very popular now whether it's decorating or um, cooking knitting you know all these kinds of things have really come back in spades but we're still not willing to recognize like oh there's you know home doesn't make itself there's got to be a home maker so we just wanted to reclaim the word and just say you know this is this is important this is this is vital this is an incredible gift that we can give those that we love so why can we not reclaim this word for what it really means rather than just you know tossing it aside and thinking that it's this relic of an era that we don't live in anymore so I, i think that that was it was all those kinds of things at, at once, um, really drawing us into this idea. When I was reading your book, I'm I'm thinking over and over again about Our Lady and her little house in Nazareth, of how she <laughs> must have, how she must have cared for it and and filled yeah. it filled it with the the beauties of nature, which is probably all she had to work with. Yeah. But but how that was the perfect beauty to complement mm-hmm. um, the beauty of the people inside. Yeah, and I think that 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 brings up a great point that beauty is not luxury those those things are not the same thing um luxury is sort of an interior narcissistic something that brings us comfort and and or like it's an extra whereas beauty is something that draws us out of ourselves um and and i think that that's you can imagine you know a wooden table with just a a small vase of wildflowers on it uh you know that's going to be beautiful in nazareth (laughs) two thousand years ago Mm -hmm. or it's going to be beautiful today and those are very simple things that don't have to cost a lot of money um and i think that that's another area where we get tripped up up and we think, oh, well, I can't possibly do it. I can't possibly create an order at home because it's going to be too expensive. Um, but it, it doesn't have to be. And I think there's a lot of ways to do thrifting and things like that that can be very simple um, and, and successful in a home. Is that a kind of apostolate that you think would be uh, something beautiful to do with friends, helping them create um, yeah. lovely homes? No, I think that's an incredible suggestion, um, especially I, I, this is not my fundamental gift. It's something that I work at and I, I copy a lot of other people what they do. And that's why I love magazines. Um, my co- co-author, Noel Maring, has this gift in spades. But um, yeah, I think that as someone who doesn't, just doesn't come naturally to, I, you know, I can't think of a better gift than someone coming in and saying, you know, you should change this and you should move that around. And what have you thought about doing this? You know, the small changes that don't have to be, you know, knock out walls kind of thing. But I, I think that it's those little things that, that other people can see that just can make all the difference in terms of the functionality of a home and also just feeling comfortable in your home and, and proud of the, the way that it looks in a healthy way and, you know, not feel like you have to go to extremes to spend a lot of money to make it look lovely. 
One of the things um, that is most important within a home is the relationships that are that are taking place in the home. Mm-hmm. And you write a lot about relationships in your book and also about um, something you call the true care for the person. Can you elaborate mm-hmm. on that, Carrie? Yeah, no, I, this is a concept that I, I think is really at the core that we don't talk a lot about as Catholics um, because we, we think about charity in terms of doing charitable acts, feeding the hungry, maybe giving, you know, yes, or recently giving Tuesday. So people would make, made a lot of donations on that day. Um, so we can think of it more in, in tangible terms, but there also, in light of that, sometimes there's just this lack of affection that we have towards people um, because we are, we're, we're at a distance with them, but that all changes in our own home where we are constantly loving other people, whether it's people that live with us or people that we're inviting into our homes. And we don't treat that at arm's length, but mm-hmm. it's 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 a gift that we give them, but it's also, there's a, this affection that's added on to it um, when we're doing it right. And where we're really caring for the whole entirety of, of the person and keeping all of those concepts at once in, in our minds and you know applying tenderness and all those kinds of things to that individual. Because I think we've had, we can all kind of point to an experience where we felt like we were being kind of taken care of but not really taken care of that it was the person was just sort of checking off a box of something they had to do and that's where our faith comes in and really changes that and you know we see that in the example of someone like mother Teresa, who you know showed tenderness and intense care to you know people that were dying and being eaten up by maggots and you know all kinds of awful things um and yet she didn't see those things she saw the person in their need and you know it's had this natural capacity to love them through all that and um, I think that's what we're all called to do and carry that balance of not just a a box but you know, there has to be this real affection and awareness of what the individual needs. It's funny, but I think all of us know when when there's a home where people are treated like people, where where mm-hmm. when you go and you knock on the door, yeah. you're you're treated, you're welcomed in, and, yeah. and you're seen as a person, and your needs are attended to. Sometimes it can be just as simple as that that neighbor on the street that everyone in the neighborhood mm-hmm. depends on. <laughs> Right, because yeah. she's really she's really engaged. You need a hand, and she doesn't just drop a casserole off at your house. You know, she comes in and rolls mm-hmm. up her sleeves, and and right. she helps you in that moment of need. Right, and now I would be grateful just for the casserole, of course. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, there's there are those people that, that know how to go above and beyond, and it, you know the, the experience that we have when when we are on the receiving end of that is we're humbled, but we also feel more known and we feel more of who we are um, and we have the capacity to, to be better and I think that that's what when we love people well um, that's the fruit of it so yeah we, we need a lot more of those amazing women who have those gifts and those intuitions and, and are able to follow through on them. You have a whole section on something that I've been trying to work on very hard in the last few years of my life which is contemplation and leading mm-hmm. leading a contemplative life in the midst mm-hmm. of a very busy home and and professional mm-hmm. life and mm-hmm. I, I find that chapter spectacular you you mentioned mm-hmm. you talk a lot about Cardinal Sarah who wrote his book uh, mm-hmm. The Power of Silence mm-hmm. which I've, I've been reading for a long time because I, I tend to I've, I'll read like a couple of pages every every couple mm-hmm. of pages I have to stop and contemplate yep. and think but how do we find interior silence and contemplation mm-hmm. through exterior silence yeah I, I think that's a great a great question and, and it was just such a fun chapter to write in terms of juxtaposing the fact that women worry you know we have this capacity to worry that it's just 
hard, we're hardwired to do it. And yet that hardwiring can really be flipped into, you know, as a vice, it's a vice and we can flip it into a virtue by contemplating things in, in our hearts. And, uh, you know, throughout scripture, we hear it says over and over again, you know, our lady pondered these things in her heart. And that's what we're called to do. You know, instead of panicking about certain situations, we're called to contemplate them in our heart within the, the, the context of what, what's God doing here and really begin to, begin to wonder about that and be open to what he's doing. Again, rather than trying to control or, you know, make the situation conform with what our thoughts are of, of a given situation. So I think that that's in a, in a, something that, you know, it's as easy as just being mindful of it to, to start with. But once we're mindful of it, then it can be practiced everywhere from, you know, when you're waiting in the pickup line or when you're on the metro going to work or, you know, anything place where you have some sort of mental space those things can happen and we can really tend that and cultivate that i think in our lives so that we don't end up in a panic and kind of this emotional um, you know lather where we're worried about every little thing but instead we are surrendering it again and doing things with god instead of trying to do things you know, our way um, with our own worry. You know, Advent is uh, here. Christmas is coming mm-hmm. up. And mm-hmm. if uh, if uh, of our, some of our listeners are like me, <laughs> you Advent comes and I want to concentrate on the glory of Advent. And instead, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm starting to make lists in my head of all mm-hmm. the things that have to get done before December 24th. Right. How, can, how can we bring that spiritual art of homemaking into mm-hmm. the Advent season, Carrie? You know, I think that this is really where, again, some very simple things can make a big difference. We just set up our, our Advent wreath. And I think that if it's as fundamental as that, lighting a candle either at dinner time or um, maybe at prayer time after dinner, or you know, even if family doesn't isn't used to praying together, light the candle and say a decade of the rosary together. Doing something additional, I think, as a family can can change kind of everything um and it doesn't have to be something that takes a lot of time but having those those tactile things and it, you know that's a nice thing i notice my kids get excited about I'm like you didn't light the, the, the wreath and uh, you know that they're, they're the ones that end up sort of taking taking over and, and being excited about that ritual so I, I think it's it doesn't have to be complicated but yeah i know this year has been obviously a lot different for people and uh, you know one of my thoughts this year has been it's been such a crazy and arduous year um that i really feel like you know it's advent's a time of waiting and, and of darkness and, and anticipation but i think that there's there's room for just a tiny bit of delight and um so i actually bought my kids um advent calendars that have little treasures with them each day. I've never done that before. But I just thought, you know, there, there's so many things that we're sacrificing this year already that I just want them to have that delight. And they're little things, but just as we build up um, to Christmas, I think that there it's going to be great. And Thomas Aquinas even talks about this, you know, that we need some form of delight in our lives. Um, it doesn't have to be huge. For me, it's my second cup of coffee in the afternoon. <laughs> but uh, I think these things go along a long way in terms of just restoring our our souls and giving us kind of a little balm for the, the arduousness that we've been dealing with. Well, thank you, Carrie. That's wonderful advice. Our time is up, and I'd like to give a little advice to our listeners. Pick up a copy of Theology of the <laughs> Home, and where can they buy it, Carrie? You know, they can get it at Amazon. They can get it at Tanbox. They can also get it at my store, um, the theologyofhome.com mercantile, if they want author, if they want me to sign their books or have them personalized as well. And I will say, get these quickly because they are are selling out. I know um, my publisher is actually out of the first Theology of Home and they're not coming back in until January. So if you can find it, get it. Um, but uh, yeah, the second one, I think they should have plenty of it this time. Oh, well, wonderful. I really, it really is a lovely book and it, it would make a very pretty Christmas gift. So thank, thank you again, you. Carrie, for your book and also for joining us today. 
My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday. Last week, on the first Sunday of Advent, we began a new year in the Church. Advent is a time of spiritual reawakening and renewal, a call to get up, get excited, and get moving toward Jesus, who never ceases to come to us. But to have this life-changing encounter with Jesus, we first have to confront and overcome the obstacles that might be in the way between the Lord and us. The biggest barrier of all is our sins and the way we hold on to them, rather than allow the Lord Jesus to take our sins away. That's why on the second Sunday of Advent each year, in order to help us make a totally fresh start, God sends us the same person he sent to get the people of Israel ready to encounter, embrace, and follow his son Jesus when Jesus finally revealed himself at the Jordan River. St. John the Baptist announces for us anew, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And he tells us what's involved in that road repair, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In the ancient world, the dirt roads were a mess. Every time there was a battle, the roads would be attacked and bridges destroyed to try to stop the advance of the enemy. The weather took its toll as well, leading to all types of potholes and other obstacles. Anytime a dignitary would be coming, they would either have to fix the roads or build new ones so that the rolling caravan accompanying the VIP could arrive without delay or hassle. St. John the Baptist is telling us that to get ready for the Lord who is coming to us this Advent, we too need to prepare a road for him. We too need to make straight moral paths. 2,000 years ago, preparing such a path meant a great deal of work, making crooked paths straight, rough ways smooth, and even charting paths through forests, mountains, and valleys. For us, that pathway will not be traced in the ground, but interiorly will not be made in the wilderness, but in day-to-day life. It's not something that will make our hands dirty, but cleanse our souls. St. John the Baptist indicated that the necessary road repair involves what Isaiah announced. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. He's calling us to level the mountains of our pride and egocentrism, to fill in the valleys that come from a shallow prayer life and a minimalistic way of living our faith, to straighten out whatever crooked, sinful paths we've been walking. This work won't be accomplished principally by willpower and elbow grease, but by God's power and amazing grace. The way we receive this help of God is to cleanse the path between Jesus and us of the worst obstacles in the sacrament of confession. We need to be as attentive, clearing the way for Christ through the sacrament, as highway workers are to remove the dead deer from high-speed lanes. Especially this pandemic season, it's important for us not to defer on making a good confession because we never know what restrictions come down. So I'd urge you to try to get to confession as soon as possible, beginning this weekend. We can focus on two witnesses who show us the straight path that John the Baptist indicates. On Tuesday, December 8th, we'll celebrate the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. 
Mary lived at the culmination of that first advent, longing with her fellow Jews for the Messiah and then after the Annunciation, welcoming that Messiah within her womb. She was prepared by God for that mission through God's keeping her free from all stain of sin from the first moment of her life in the womb of her mother, St. Anne. She was the fulfillment of the prophetic proto-gospel in the book of Genesis when God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. From the first moment of Mary's existence, she had this enmity, this hatred, this contempt for the devil and for sin. Ever since Jesus gave her as our mother on the cross, she has been especially committed to helping us have a similar enmity towards sin. That's what happens at our baptism when we reject sin, when we reject Satan, when we reject all his evil works and empty promises. To live Advent well is to rediscover this enmity, like Mary had, toward the devil and all his seductions. God kept Mary free from the clutches of sin by her immaculate conception. He severs the cord for us through baptism and then through confession. That's why St. John the Baptist is sent to us each second Sunday of Advent, to effect a consequential, life-changing conversion with us. The second great figure I'll mention is St. Joseph. This December 8th, on Tuesday, we will mark the 150th anniversary of St. Joseph's being declared patron of the Universal Church by Pope Blessed Pius IX in 1870. Unlike the Blessed Mother, Joseph was not immaculately conceived. But nevertheless, he cleared the way for the Messiah ultimately to arrive in the world, arranging for him to be born in a shelter, however poor. And he provided for and protected him so that he could travel safely through his infancy and adolescence, eventually to his public manifestations much later. St. Joseph is patron of the church because he shows us how to welcome both Christ on his arrival as well as to love Our Lady. Perhaps the most famous Catholic hymn for the second Sunday of Advent is On Jordan's Bank, which we proclaim, Then cleansed be every soul from sin, make straight the way of God within. Prepare we in our hearts a home where such a mighty guest may come. Our Lady and St. Joseph show us how to make that home for the mightiest guest of all. Let us ask their intercession so that we may heed the Baptist call. Take off whatever shackles of sin bind us through making the best confession of our life this week so that we might unhindered run out to meet Jesus and run with Jesus all the way up the path to the heavenly Jerusalem where John the Baptist, Mary, and Joseph rejoice and await us. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 